contact tracing has been around since the 19th century and health departments do it every day, especially for things like HIV, syphilis, tuberculosis. Hello everyone, this is Computationally Yours, where the conversations begin at Computational Biology. I'm your host, Dr. Sabah Kadri. And I am Arshi Arora. Arshi, we are truly living in unprecedented times, uh, living through this COVID-19 pandemic. I agree, Sabah. Every day there are new developments and, you know, we're hearing terms that we used to not hear before. And one of them is contact tracing. And this week, Sabah, I think you spoke with Dr. Nicholas Solakis. So let's go straight to your interview and please share with us what you learned from him. All right, listeners, today we have with us Dr. Nicholas Solakis, who is an epidemiologist working with the Illinois Department of Public Health in the Office of Policy, Planning and Statistics. He is supporting the contact tracing program. Dr. Solakis has a really impressive career in epidemiology and informatics, and we hope to learn a lot from him today. He has a PhD in epidemiology from University of Pittsburgh. When he's not working for the IDPH, he serves as the Director of Data Science Services at the Center for Data Science and Informatics at Northwestern University. So, Dr. Solakis, thank you so much for talking to us. It looks like you've spent your career in epidemiology and informatics working on complex models and trends in population health. So why don't you get us started by telling us how this has helped prepare you for working on pandemic data science? Oh, well, it's a pleasure to be here, Sabah. I've spent a lot of time thinking about disease surveillance and public health practice uh, throughout my career. Early on in my career, even when I very first started, I was only 20 years old and I did not even know epidemiology existed until I stumbled into a school of public health and I learned about the disease detectives and infectious disease epidemiology and outbreaks. And from that time, epidemiology has always been to me about practice and making decisions, what now is phrased by the CDC as information for action. And so I do have a career in informatics and data science, but I would say most of it is rooted actually in trying to accomplish public health goals through surveillance and, like you mentioned, population health trends and identifying uh, problems in the population and thinking through ways of solving them. So the data science and informatics was actually a national, natural progression from trying to solve public health problems. Was there anything unexpected or surprising that you came across when you started working on pandemic data science? Oh, of course. That stems from my very earliest training. Uh, you don't realize that there is a lot of do-it-yourself and there is a lot of decision-making in the moment. And when you first get started, when you're in school, when you're training, uh, when you're reading about these things, you assume there's a, a, a superstructure of public health support and that th you're going to have data and you're going to have tools. But what you quickly find out is when you are in the moment, one of my bosses at the New York City Department of Public Health, he was a former EIS officer. And in New York, you can imagine lots of things happen almost every day. And as an epidemiologist at working at a health department, one of the things I realized was that you make decisions quickly in the moment. And he was very fond of saying there would be something that we needed to do very quickly. Uh, and in fact, this is not my first pandemic. This is actually my second pandemic. Uh, the first one was H1N1. I distinctly remember it being at the beginning of May. 
And uh, I distinctly remember us working with the hospitals for that pandemic. And the clarion call was, we'll take the data any way we can get it. And so we had everything from HL7 feeds and very rapid uh, you know, data transfer, very sophisticated to people emailing us files. And so one thing I learned was in the moment that you just have to be willing to do whatever it takes to get the data and do the analysis so that someone can make a decision. And oftentimes you are not the one making the decision. So the timetables are not yours, nor are the operations that you're responding to. Oh my God, I did not know this was your second pandemic, but that completely makes sense, of course, with the timeline. So uh, let's get started talking about contact tracing. It is kind of the topic of the moment. And uh, since you're supporting the contact tracing program as well, we would like to learn a little bit more about not only what contact tracing is, but also the role that data science and modeling is playing in that particular program. So why don't we get started by telling our listeners what is contact tracing? Sure. It's a great question because I think there's, there's a lot of mystery surrounding contact tracing uh, as a modern occurrence and especially in this pandemic. However, contact tracing has been around since the 19th century and health departments do it every day, especially for things like HIV, syphilis, tuberculosis. We have partner notification programs that almost any local health department is familiar with. And so to call that contact tracing something new is, is certainly an error. And we are going to extend certain parts of contact tracing, but most contact tracing that we're talking about and most states are talking about are actually rooted in a, a very uh, age-old practice that happens in a lot of settings, whether it's the United States, whether it's Ebola in Africa, uh, whether it's HIV programs around the world. Uh, this is something that happens every day. And uh, the basic idea is, is that you're supporting patients with a suspected or confirmed infection. And the, the public health staff, they'll work with the patient to recall everyone who they had close contact with during a certain time frame uh, that makes sense. And then the public health staff is going to uh, advise those exposed individuals of their potential exposure as rapidly and keep in mind and as sensitively as possible because a person may just be learning about their infection or their potential infection in the moment. It's a public health action because there's a lot of sensitive information shared, which is, you know, also a role of the local health department is to collect, uh, collect data in a sensitive way and keep it secure. So we do realize that there is, you know, there's a lot of sensitivity to this, but these are hard questions that local health departments ask every day. And uh, just for an example, when you notify a contact that they may have been exposed, you don't reveal the name of the person that they've been exposed to you know, that would be a breach of confidentiality. For our particular contact tracing program, you know, if someone has been within six feet of another person for more than 30 minutes, they're going to be considered a close contact and that they'll be made aware and that they should monitor themselves. You know, they can check their temperature twice daily is probably better than just once a day. And of course, they're going to watch for things like coughing or shortness of breath. They should expect that someone's going to contact them twice a day. So, Contact tracing, once you establish the initial contacts, um, is really, especially for the pandemic we're in now, is going to be about a 14-day window. So a person would expect that uh, if they were a close contact, that every day, twice a day, for 14 days, a person is going to call them and make sure that they have not developed symptoms. So that sounds like you need an army of people to do this. And of course, it takes a lot of human effort. But what kind of tools or data can help these contact tracers to do their jobs better? Well, that's an interesting question. It's not a particularly data-dependent practice. 
you can imagine that, you know, as I mentioned, data collection is important. And so a simple set of forms would work. You're, you know, you're collecting demographic information, some clinical information. Uh, I did mention that if a person, um, if the person has been exposed, that they're going to have to uh, be monitored and isolated for 14 days. So some of the technology is actually just uh, reliant on being able to contact the person for the 14 days. Now, that could simply be a telephone call. It could also be a person standing on your porch, which requires no technology whatsoever. But given, like you said, the scale and the scope of what we're doing, we're not going to put people on, on everyone's porch in Illinois. You're more likely to pick up a telephone, which is a very old technology. In modern times in which we live, a very easy way to do this would be to send regular text messages, which require no human intervention whatsoever. The text message could be sent every day at the same time, and it could say, are you feeling symptoms? And you could respond, no, I am not. And that might be the end of the text. So uh, there will be some algorithmic texting. Are you experiencing symptoms today? I feel feverish. There may be an algorithm that walks down what kind of fever this is. Is it related to, you know, do you feel like it's related to something else? There'll be a clinical algorithm. And that's an easy rule-based system to build out. And it wouldn't be data-driven per se. It would be based on uh, known clinical definitions that our health department would support. And most of those case definitions, you know, would also be supported by the CDC. Those would be the recommended guidelines. And if people really want to know how the algorithm works, we do have a, a council of state and territorial epidemiologists and another association of, of epidemiologists that work together to classify these definitions. So some of the AI developers out there may want to know that there are actually a group of epidemiologists that work across the country that develop these case definitions. But there's a lot of thought that goes into what exactly are these case definitions because you know anyone that's ever built a classifier knows that defining your classes is really important. So you know you could have algorithmic text messaging uh, that generates data, of course. So we would hope that most people that do have a telephone and connectivity would be able to, to walk through humanless contact, uh, which of course is going to make the whole system a lot more efficient. Uh, so that would be one technology that would be really important for, for contact tracing. That's very interesting. And I was listening to the press conference that the Illinois Department of uh, Public Health did yesterday. And one of the things that struck me was th them addressing the role of modeling in contact tracing, especially they mentioned different kinds of models where there might be predictions on the total number of daily contact tracing workers that might be needed in the workforce, for example. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of modeling uh, for different aspects of this program and maybe give us an example of an interesting model, something that we can learn from. Sure, I'd be happy to because this actually has been uh, something we spent a lot of time on because you can imagine that at an executive level, a contact tracing program is an expenditure <laughs> and that we need to pay for it. And, you know, I think it's very fair to consider what is the human resources required to operationalize a contact tracing plan. So naturally, this has been one of the sources of discussion. And I think also it's one of the things that is really uh, splashed in the headlines, you know, big numbers of contact tracers across states. Um, and so I think that people are sensitive to a mobilization of that sort of effort. I will say that we work very closely with some with some modeling groups, of course, our own Northwestern University modelers, the University of Chicago, the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign all have uh, modeling groups which are very deeply engaged in the process. And uh, we specifically work with the University of Chicago and Northwestern University to try and understand how their projections for cases around the state would necessitate the need for uh, case workers, uh, which is, you know, basically the human resources required for the contact tracing. So you can imagine that a lot of things go into their models. 
Um, but some of the most important numbers are, you know, number one, what is the current prevalence of coronavirus around the state? You have to think about things like how many days a week does a person work? If you have one caseworker, are they working one day a week, five days a week? Uh, you have to consider things like how many phone calls you could make a day if it actually becomes a phone process. And I, and I can tell you, we do hope that a lot of people use automated uh, systems, but a lot of this is going to be about picking up a telephone and having a phone call. Some of those phone calls will be short. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling fine. You hang up the phone. That's going to be very short. However, some of those phone calls can be a little bit longer and you have to be patient. I will say that anecdotally, one of the things that makes a good contact tracer is having a charming personality and being able to talk to human beings on a telephone. So that kind of all factors into being able to make a certain amount of phone calls a day. Another thing you might uh, want to put into your model is the number of days which it takes to identify the contacts, because ultimately it does require, you know, a person has to recall, first of all, all the people that they were in close contact with, but then you have to be able to track those people down. And uh, that can take some resourcefulness. So you have to take into account um, how, how long it's going to take to actually identify the contacts, how many, an index case is going to contact how many unique people per day. So that's going to be important. You know, if a person, let's say, works at a restaurant, that number is going to be very high. Um, if a person lives alone and they're staying in their own home, that's going to be a very low number. So you have to make it some assumptions about unique people per day. Um, for every, uh, another number is for every positive test, how many negative tests. So, you know, there's a lot of numbers that can go into modeling. And then, of course, uh, the models themselves, you know, they have to take into account all those factors and weightings and uh, be good models themselves. You know, they have to fit the data and, and whatnot. So just like most predictive modeling, I can imagine that uh, there are different types of models. Of course, like you mentioned, all these different features that they might take into account. They might make different predictions. Is there a golden rule or some kind of... Uh, factors that you take into account when selecting results from one model over another, or do you average across the models? How, how do you deal with that? This is actually one of the things, when you asked me about uh, things that are surprising, uh, this is actually one of the things that I found most surprising is just the dynamic that, I think it's Nate Silver that really does a great job of explaining the, the psychology of forecasters and the signal and the noise. And epidemiologic modelers are no different. And that we understand our models, we understand our assumptions, and we understand that they're tied to real world constraints. And especially in, in a pandemic situation, you have time constraints because every day that goes by, uh, people are getting sick and people unfortunately are dying. And so the actual psychology of using models in a pandemic is, is really interesting. I don't think I'm stealing the headlines here when I say that modelers will be the first to tell you that when they don't think their model's good enough. That to me, you know, being an academic and doing a lot of analysis myself, I know that sometimes that you, you wouldn't move forward. You would go back and fix your model until they were perfect or they fit the situation or the study or whatever it is. But sometimes you just need to move forward and with, with what you know to be bad models. And sometimes you need to go forward with groups of models. You know, like I said, we work with several different groups of modelers and there's even modelers outside of those groups. And so you may have the luxury, you may not have the luxury of picking a set of models and a set of outputs and a set of estimates and uh, making your own judgment calls as to the quality of the output. I can tell you that sometimes I'm forced into a range of numbers so that if one model is high and one model is low, you may give a range of numbers, you know, or you may pick a midpoint of those two numbers. I can just tell you that some of this 
is really tied just to the, the, the moment you're in that day and what are the needs of the decision maker. And I think that sometimes we do get caught up in the perfection of models and thinking that the model has to actually give the answer. But it isn't necessarily that the model has to give the answer. A model can give a direction. A model can give a range. A model can give you a set of parameters which are important that you may not have been able to identify out of many possible parameters. And that sometimes those models are really just a, a gut check for decision makers that are, might just have to walk into an office in the next hour and say a number. That is very interesting. So next, I'm going to read out a question that came in through social media. We had put out a tweet asking people to submit uh, questions about contact tracing. This is the one we've selected. This one has come to us from Singapore. Question says that many countries have different apps to enable contact tracing, like Trace Together in Singapore. Is there any data at this point to show how effective these apps can be? Wow, I really wish there were. To be honest, I don't know if it would be considered even if there were, because you have to consider your local, really have to consider, you know, the fit for your, exactly the population in which you're trying to surveil. Um, I'm going to dodge the question a little bit as far as the effectiveness of the apps themselves, uh, because that doesn't really necessarily fit into the decision-making process to, to choose an app. I can tell you, though, that evaluation of digital contact tracing tools has been systematized somewhat by the CDC. And I think that that's a really important thing to consider is that, you know, that there are many tools out there. We have ingenious, you know, software communities with all sorts of uh, technology that's been proven in other, you know, in other venues and at, sometimes at much higher volume. And, you know, sometimes the decisions that's used for that technology, those are not insignificant. It could be huge financial decisions sometimes that are made with that same technology. It could be risk uh, for things like in the insurance industry or it could be a lot of different settings in which those apps have previously been used. But the truth of it is, is that they need to be refitted for the circumstances that we're in today and exactly how we're going to operationalize the contact tracing program today. The CDC has been evaluating surveillance systems for probably 40 years now. And even before that, they just didn't formalize it. So the evaluating of any surveillance uh, system based on uh, whether it's a people process, a paper process, a technology process, that is comforting because most epidemiologists will be able to tell you how to evaluate a surveillance system. And, you know, I can just tell you things that go into it are, you know, especially for contact tracing is things like case identification. What are the minimum requirements for that? What are the preferred requirements for that? Um, contact notification, contact follow-up. How do you actually get the contacts from the person, you know, soliciting the contacts? You know, so there are like key features and those features are tied back to age-old criteria that epidemiologists use for almost any surveillance system. Surveillance systems have gotten mo more modern as time has gone on. And so referring to things as a platform is really important. And, you know, once you have a platform, does it go mobile? Is it a desktop environment? You know, does it go offline? Um, you know, and then there's other things. There's data interoperability. Of course, you don't want to drop a brand new application. Our own IDPH does surveillance for many conditions every single day. And uh, that's a very well, uh, well-run system by people that understand it and, you know, take care for things like standards and uh, people processes within their own organizations. Um, is it trustworthy? I know that this has come up quite a bit. If a, if a technology vendor does come in, where the data lives and what their access to the data is, is very important. Um, you know, privacy is really important. 
customizability. We learn things every day, you know, every day while we're fighting this, uh, we learn new things and you would be able to like to modify your technology. If it, if it does require a big tech build out, that's not going to be a very popular application with any, within any department of health, that if it's impossible to modify from day to day. So there, there are quite a few features and, you know, just, uh, I would say that the CDC uh, recommendations for the applications are some of the, are a really good place to start. So that brings me to my last follow-up question, which would be, since every state is almost doing their own version of contact tracing, how much standardization is there in practices for contact tracing or like even the models that are used or the kind of uh, the way the program is structured, et cetera? Is, is there a standardization at all or is every state making its own decision on how to do it and it's epidemiologists like you who are making those decisions for the states? Well, I know you asked me about the United States, but I'll, I'll give a local example uh, that I think might get to the answer to your question. Um, because it really takes an understanding of how public health is practiced within your within your state. Most public health is going to be state by state, and most governors will make decisions which uh, benefit their state. So they they're taking into account you know local constraints and local decision making. And so I think that part is obvious. Uh, what people may not realize is that some states uh, public health is run county by county, and so. Of course, we all have state departments of health, but depending on your particular state, you may regionalize or even go county by county for your public health response. Uh, I can tell you in Illinois, we have, uh, I believe, 76 local health departments. Some, of course, are very large and robust because they have large and robust populations. Some are as small as five people because their populations are smaller um, and it takes less people to provide those services. And so when we talk about standards, you can have standards, and I can tell you for you know contact tracing, there are certain metrics which you want to operationalize. If you're going to do a central command structure, for instance, there's going to be certain metrics that no matter the size or location or constraints of a local health department, uh, you know, so things like out of the contacts that were identified, how many were you able to interview? That question and that metric works for no matter what size you are or where you are. So the standardizing the set of metrics which you use to continually monitor the progress of your contact tracing is much more easy to standardize than the actual practices because, so getting back to it, uh, you may have a regional or local health department actually running the contact tracing. And that's really important because they understand their population, they understand their resources, they have a set decision-making process. Most likely they already have professional contact tracers. And, you know, in their STD programs and their TB programs, depending on their populations and uh, the kinds of problems that they solve on a regular basis. I think it's a, a misnomer to say that there would be a national approach to or a national standard for contact tracing, um, because really public health does a lot of times happen at the local level. And that benefits all of us, actually, because your local health department probably knows you and your community best. And it goes without saying that the local health department is part of the community. So it's not that the local health department is surveilling the community. It's that the local health department is doing surveillance with the community. And that includes, you know, local hospitals and healthcare, local business leaders, you know, local uh, uh, first responders. So I know it kind of kicks the can down the road a little bit, but 
you know, just to get back to the question, so you might standardize the metrics in which you operationalize contact tracing so that those can be reported back to a, a central, you know, command structure and decision-making structure. And, you know, those data would be analyzed regularly and reported back to the command structure so that they could respond to them. But the actual contact tracing itself, um, local health departments have a, a lot of decision-making leeway, how they actually operationalize it. And uh, that benefits everybody, actually, depending on, um, you know, the, the unique characteristics of, of where you live. All right. And that brings us to the last segment of the episode, which is if you had to tell our listeners one take-home message that you want them to walk away with today, either relevant to data science in contact tracing or just contact tracing by itself or even epidemiology, what would it be? Oh, boy. Well, I'm also a professor of informatics, and I have a lot of informatics students. The thing that I tell them is the two most important tools in informatics are listening to people talk about the problems they're trying to solve and observing processes live. And a lot of times I think that that takes students by surprise because they assume I'm going to say something about technology or data or analysis or interpretation. But being able to intuitively understand the problems, the people, uh, the, the processes, the objectives that people are trying to achieve, it always makes the solution better. Anyone that knows me knows that I, I'm a champion of people, not necessarily of models. Um, and that I think that, you know, without people, we, we have no users for our models. And so um, I think that we have to work in concert with information. It's, it's not that we're subservient to, to models or information, right? You know, I would just say that, you know, people are important and take them into consideration into our data science enterprises. All right, Dr. Sulekis, thank you so much for talking to us. I definitely learned a lot about contact tracing today, and I hope that our listeners did as well. Listeners, this is the end of our episode. Do send us an email with questions and feedback. Our email address is computationallyyours at gmail.com. It is listed in the description below. Do follow us on Twitter at CompBioPodcast. If you would like to collaborate with us on any future episodes, tweet at us or email us. Check out the video version of this podcast on our YouTube channel and do subscribe to us on the platforms of your choice. Until next time, this is Computationally Yours.